0: This morning's message is titled, Be Strong and Courageous, with a question mark, Holy War and Divine Justice, in Joshua 1, verse 9. I don't often read out the titles of the sermons that I have, but I think that gives you an indication. We're in for a, a full sermon today, and I'm going to borrow something from Bruxy Cavey that I heard him do recently, so I'd like you to just join me for a second and place both of your hands at your left hip. Go ahead. And then I want you to pull your right hand across your waist to your right hip. Do You know what you just did? That's right. You just put on your seatbelt, get ready for a wild ride. As many of you know, as many of you know, uh, my wife and daughter and I just returned last week from a trip up north that we do every summer to a camp in a First Nations community uh, just about 300 kilometers east of James Bay, and it was a joy, and uh, I'd like to show you a picture from that. Um, this, is, this is the final week of camp that we had, and there were about 41 campers, as well as all of the leaders, the 14 leaders that we had for that, and it was a wild ride, and we really enjoyed it. And uh, from that, that same stretch of weeks, it was actually a three-week journey that we were on, I want to show another picture that's one of my favorites, even though it's not the greatest of pictures. Here you can see myself with a couple of kids and a leader hanging off of me and other leaders around me. And if you look really closely, you'll see a green object in my left arm. That is a watermelon. Okay. Uh, this is a game that we play up north with the campers every year. We, we take a watermelon, we cover it in lard, and then we play football in the water with it is essentially what happens. And it's full on tackle football. So, so uh, here you can see me proving that I can still take on the young bucks in, in, the, in the world. <laughs> And, and part of the reason that I like this photo is not not just because it's a fun photo, um, but because actually it brings to mind another photo from a number of years before that, that you'll see there's a little bit of resemblance there. This is a picture of me uh, in, in the same body of water with a ton of little kids hanging off of me. I think there's four or five of them hanging off of me and another couple getting ready to jump on in this picture. And the, the thing that isn't easily realizable is that actually the kids in this picture... Uh, I don't know if they were in the other picture, but they certainly could have been because many of the kids in this picture, who are five and six years old, were at our preteen camp this year which was a really, really cool thing to experience that we've been able to be in their lives for the last seven years, and they've now come from the place of being five or six years old to now being 11 or 12 years old. And, and to be able to rekindle uh, those relationships and to be able to enjoy their company and see how God is working in their lives and, and also see some of the things, that the challenges that they're starting to face and to be praying for them and with them and trying to encourage them in that is really a, a pretty neat opportunity. Uh, and it has been a life-changing opportunity. We started out this journey in 2010. It was the first time that Shashan and I were invited to be part of this. Um, It was just after we were married, one of my mentors said to us, hey, we still need a team leader for for some sports camps that we're running. Can you come be part of this? And at that time, we had no experience whatsoever with First Nations youth, and uh, we had no real experience with camp ministry other than having attended camps a little bit when we were teenagers, Um, and yet we felt the Lord lay it heavily on our our hearts to be part of it, and we got involved, and ever since, it has been a real learning experience and a real joy for us, and uh, it has been a cross-cultural experience. What's amazing is we're, we're staying within Canada, it's in Quebec, and yet despite that fact, uh, it really is a completely different culture. The, the way that they live, the way that they think, the way that they talk is, is very different than our own, and it has shown me a great deal about myself. Uh, in particular, it has taught me how much I like to fill silence. And this is one of the greatest lessons that I have come away with, is that it is okay to actually be quiet together. <laughs> As odd as that seems. And, and they seem to get that intuitively. There, there are often times when we are talking and sharing heavy stories and there will be moments where we pause where we listen, where we were just quiet together. Um, Shoshana even had that opportunity with one of the kids that she knew when when she first went up there and got to see her again. And I think they spent just a whole hour just standing together by the water, just being together. And it was really a beautiful sight. And and to realize that God ministers to us even in the moments of silence, sometimes especially in the moments of silence, has been a, a real learning experience for me. So I, I thought I'd open with that. And I think you'll see that there's actually a tie-in uh, with, the, with the sermon where I'm going today. Uh, but I also thought I'd plug that I did do a newsletter specifically with stories from the camps recently there on the back uh, the, there's a there's a table out back in the in the room just behind us here and there's a few copies of this if you want to grab that and read some of the stories from from the leaders experiences uh, I actually let them write a lot of stories themselves and it's a neat, neat uh, way to catch up on what was going on up north throughout this summer we have been doing a series on what's called pop versus. this is a term that Brent picked up uh, he did a search Uh, on a Bible study tool and found the 25 most searched verses on the Bible study tool. And we've been working our way through some of them, the the ones that you you often hear quoted in passing, things that people look up to encourage themselves and to try and see how they might live their life with God. And some of the ones that we've covered so far, like John 3.16 or Psalm 23, are ones that we have a pretty plain meaning, and I think a lot of us have read a number of times over and studied a number of times over and heard preached on a number of times over, and we have a pretty good understanding, but maybe, maybe there's some extra depth that we can go into with them. Then there are some like John, uh, Jeremiah 29.11 that maybe we need to pause and to think carefully before we decide we're going to apply it to ourselves because it's a little trickier how it is we actually take those passages and we apply the, them to our own lives. Then there's the one we're going to look at today, It's really in a whole category unto itself. It it seems really nice, but as soon as you do even a cursory study of it, you begin to realize you're opening a massive can of worms. Now, for me, this is funny to be preaching this sermon today, which is going to be a fairly complex sermon, because, as I mentioned in the sharing time, yesterday I was doing a wedding in Ottawa, and we drove back late at night. We got back around 2, and I didn't get to sleep till about 3 o'clock. Um, and, and so my eyes feel like they're ready to fall out of my head right now. And, uh, obviously it's a, it's a Sunday where there's also a little fewer people around, which maybe is a sign from God. We'll see. <laughs> but I wanted to, to say, if I say anything that sounds really heretical, maybe, maybe ask me if that's what I meant once I'm a little more awake. Okay. <laughs> because we're dealing with a pretty complex topic today and I just thought I'd start out by, uh, yeah, there might be some things that are a little complicated in here and we need to sort through a little bit beforehand. Let's read over the passage, and I think you'll see with me pretty quickly what I mean when I say it is a little bit of a can of worms that we're opening up. Joshua 1 9 reads, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Again, on the surface, this is a really nice verse. There's an encouraging promise. God is with us wherever we go. There's an important reminder. Don't be frightened. There's a challenging command. Be strong and courageous. We can see how this would be a really helpful reminder when we're facing temptations or trials in life. We need a little, a little boost to our spirits. All right, be strong and courageous. Don't be frightened. God is with us, right? Well, the only problem is the context. Let's start in verse 1. Of this very same chapter the starting of the book of Joshua it reads after the death of Moses the servant of the Lord the Lord said to Joshua the son of Nun Moses's assistant Moses my servant is dead now therefore arise go over this Jordan you and all the people into the land that I'm giving to them to the people of Israel every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon I have given to you just as I promised to Moses from the wilderness And this Lebanon, and as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be very careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Did you catch it? Right at the beginning? Let me read it again. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving them to the people of Israel. Every place that, is the, that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. You see, God is promising the Israelites land, and it's not empty land. The problem with Joshua 1 verse 9 is that it's not a promise about struggles in our faith. It's a promise of conquest and of the most violent kind imaginable. Just to emphasize this, let's look at Deuteronomy 7. This is now going back chronologically just before Moses died. And he's giving kind of a parting speech to the nation of Israel, trying to remind them of the most important laws that God has for them and what he's going to do in their midst. And in Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 to 2, we read, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. In other words, when God promises to be with Joshua, what he means is that he'll help in this endeavor. And this is exactly what we see playing out throughout the book of Joshua. God shows up in many mighty ways, performing miracles directly to assist in this conquest. There are two in particular that stand out and are the types of stories that we share in Sunday school all the time, but I don't think we really go very deep into them with our children and often with ourselves. Take, for example, the opening conquest, the story of what happens right after the Israelites go into this land. There's a people group there living in a place called Jericho. And we know the story of Jericho. It's, it's really quite a neat story. Here the Israelites go in and they realize they cannot overcome this wall. And so they are listening to God, trying to seek out how they should conquer. And he tells them, walk around this city for seven days straight. And on the last day, walk around it seven times and, and then blow the trumpets and the walls will come down. And the Israelites go about doing this, and this is the stuff of Veggie Tales legend, where we have them mocking these soldiers for doing something that seems ridiculous. And they, they get to the end, and they blow the horns, and indeed, the walls fall down. Now, I think, actually, our imaginations are a little bit frail on this front. I, I think, sometimes we think it's literally just God, like, pulling apart the walls or something like that. But actually, when we realize what it is that they're doing, they are, they are doing a march... Claiming this city for themselves and when they blow the trumpets, they're actually issuing a, a charge I think what we're supposed to be picturing here is that the angelic armies of God trample right over that wall and knock it right down charge Whump! and Now the Israelites just have to come in and clean up It's really an amazing scene showing how God will fight battles on behalf of the Israelites and yet it's a battle, and we have to wrestle with that a little bit, because battles aren't pretty. Another miracle that's performed in this book <clears throat> is one in which we're told that the Israelites are fighting a particular nation, and, and Joshua knows that they're outmatched in this particular battle, and so he asks God to, to make the sun do something. Now, there's a lot of debate around the particular words in there. And in a lot of English translation, it says, make the sun stand still. There's a lot of people who think actually what's being talked about is not make the sun stand still, but make the sun go dark. And that what took place was a a, a supernaturally timed uh, solar eclipse, much like the one that we're going to actually get to experience later this month. And, And that this was known as a bad omen to the army that was being attacked. They realized, oh my goodness, we're in trouble. And because of that... God, God allowed the Israelites to come in and wipe them out. We can get into all of the little messy debates around this, but one way or the other, whether the sun stood still or whether it was a, a miraculously timed solar eclipse and bad omen for the army that was there, uh, God intervenes within nature itself. He, he, he brings about something that we only get to see once in a very long time. It, it's a big enough occasion that people are going to be actually traveling quite a distance within the United States to try and see this full solar eclipse that's taking place. It's an exciting thing because of how rare it is, and God makes sure that the Israelites have this sign of Him being on their side and this presence to give them strength and courage as they wipe out another people group. It, you're feeling this with me, are you? This is this is something that's on one hand incredibly powerful in terms of the demonstration that God is making here, and yet, to our 21st century sensibilities. There's something that feels off about this. Really, really God? This is, this is what you want to show up as? The God who helps wipe out people groups? And I tell you, I, I work with students at Trent University throughout the year. This particular book, this particular set of events, is the one that causes students to stumble more than anything else. There are lots of really good questions that get asked at a university campus? How do do faith and science fit together? And and, and how come God allows suffering to take place in this world if he's all good and all-powerful? But I think the one that students struggle to answer the most is how can we worship a God that would command genocide? And we need to wrestle with it because the Bible is really clear that this God that we're seeing in the Old Testament is the same God who shows up in the flesh as Jesus Christ. Later on in the Bible. He he makes it really clear, I am that God. I am, I am. And, and so we need to wrestle with this question. Now, what I'd like to put forward to you today are three three things that that, first of all, there's some good news. It's, it's not as bad as it looks. Then some bad news. It's actually worse than it looks. And then some good good news, because there's hope beyond ourselves. And, and all three of these are going to center on the same core idea that this passage is actually not about God commanding genocide. It's much deeper than that. It's about divine justice and the, the restoration of the world to what it's supposed to be. So let's start off with the good news. It, it's not quite as bad as it seems. When you start studying this passage, theologians will come back to certain core themes. One of the first ones is the fact that it's not as bad as it seems because a lot of the talk about wiping out people entirely is hyperbolic. That is, it's not meant to be taken 100% literally. It's kind of speech to try and rally us and to get us excited. In fact, it's the type of speech that we might use when the Montreal Canadiens destroy the Toronto Maple Leafs. You see what I did there? Destroy the Toronto Maple Leafs, right? We use that type of language within sports circles all the time. And, and, and many war narratives, like the one found in Joshua in ancient times, use that same type of language to say, utterly destroy, we're going to wipe them out, we're going to crush them beneath our feet. But actually, when you look at the historic narrative, there were actually a lot of people who were left alive within the conquest of Canaan. The Israelites did not go through and wipe out every man, woman, and child, and everything that they possessed. They took out the major strongholds of the enemy nations and committed those to the Lord, and otherwise largely left the people around them. Now, that also caused some problems for them, so you might debate whether that was a good thing. But, but, at the very least, we can say that historically the Israelites did not actually come in and destroy the Canaanites the same way that the Montreal Canadians did not destroy the Toronto Maple Leafs, even if we might like them to once in a while. Well, I don't know. We'll get into that one later. <laughs> Another reason why we might take some encouragement, why it's not quite as bad as it seems, is because one thing that we might be afraid of in this passage tr- simply is not taking place. We might look at this passage and think, oh, God is giving preferential treatment to the Israelites. He's saying there are better people than other people. This is kind of racial superiority at its worst or something like that. And actually, one thing that's incredibly clear through the Old Testament is that is not God's intention in this. That's not the message that he's trying to send. And one passage really illustrates that well. Deuteronomy 9, 4-5, to which is coming not long after that, that commandment that Moses gave to his people to go in and wipe them out utterly... He says do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you It's because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess the land whereas it, is because of, it, whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart Are you going to possess the land? But because of the wickedness of these nations the Lord your God is driving them out before you And that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers to Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob. Okay, so so we see here, God is saying, no, no, you guys aren't really better than them. Don't you start boasting in this, right? You actually were a weak nation. You actually were a frail nation. You're not. You're not really all that great. Uh, the reason I'm driving them out is really just to deal with their hearts, to deal with their sin. Uh, and, and also to live faithful to my promise that I gave to your forefathers. That's the real reasons behind this conquest. So, so don't you think that I'm engaging in racial superiority here? Because I'm not. I'm not saying you are a superior race. Okay? So, so we can take some comfort in this. Right? This, does not, this does not affirm the idea that one group of people, whether they be white, black, Middle Eastern, or whatever, is, is superior to others. That's simply not what God is doing in this case. But you see, both of these alone, they, they might give us a little bit of relief. But for me, it wasn't really until I read one particular book that I, I really felt like I had addressed this question of the Holy War more deeply in my heart and felt like I really had a strong answer to it. The book is called The Skeletons in God's Closet. It's read by a missionary, or it's written by a missionary named Joshua Butler. And he does a fantastic job of talking about three topics. They're, they're in the subtitle. It's about hell, justice, and holy war. Okay? Those are the skeletons in God's closet, the things that people don't like to talk about within the church. Hell, justice, and holy war. And he does a fantastic job of looking at the scripture passages that really shape our theology on these topics, as well as the historic discussion that takes place along them. And, and, and as he discusses in the last portion of the book this holy war theme, he demonstrates that really what's going on here is restorative justice. What's taking place here is God demonstrating how interested he is in restoring the world to its original place. You see, we really need to understand what's hinted at in that passage in Deuteronomy. And that's, we need to place this conquest in its context of understanding who the Israelites are. You see, the Israelites are not a great nation. Certainly, they come to hold a place in the Middle East for a period in history but they are a slave group that for a long time was being controlled by an enemy empire that was great and they were being controlled largely through ethnic cleansing and we see this at the beginning of Exodus that when they got too numerous the people just started wiping out their kids. So this is a group of people that have gone through some scarring devastating things. They have very little in the way of monetary or military resources. Then then they go and they live in the desert for 40 years. Now let me tell you that doesn't strengthen you for the act of war when you've been on the verge of starvation for a lot of years and the only reason you're surviving is because God's providing for you supernaturally. Uh, And and they have to cross multiple bodies of water um, that are a difficult journey. This is is a people group that is really quite displaced in the world. It has no place and it is not able to establish a place for itself. And so Joshua Butler points out that far from being a narrative of a mighty nation conquering smaller, weaker nations, which is what we often think of with this story, he says when we zoom out to the mighty empires of the ancient world, it is almost as if God is intentionally choosing the smallest, weakest, most vulnerable, helpless, and powerless nation he can to demonstrate to the mightiest, wickedest, bloodiest, nastiest, powerhouse empires of the day that there is a message he wants to send loud and clear to the ancient world. What is that message? This is who I am. I am the rightful ruler of the earth, and I stand up for the weak, the exploited, and the oppressed. That's what's going on here. Here's a people group the world has overlooked, has mistreated, has told is worthless. And God says, no, no. These are my people, the weak, the marginalized, the overlooked. And this is a theme that continues all through Scripture in the prophets and in Jesus' ministry and even in the apostles' writings following Jesus' ministry. We see their, their emphasis, God is the God of the weak. He wants to restore them to their rightful place over and against those who would exploit them and oppress them. And Butler uses one comparison that struck home to me because of the experiences I've had the last uh, seven years or so. He says, this is almost as if God were to take the First Nations people of North America and allow them in their hundreds of thousands of people to somehow overcome the American military and take back over this land. Now, although I hope that the kids that I love would never feel the need to resort to violence, in my heart of hearts, I recognize there would be justice if the Cree kids I served were part of a God-orchestrated revolution. There would be some justice in that. I believe the portrait provided here of a God who sides with them is a good thing, even if it is a bloody affair. That doesn't mean I don't have any struggles with this. The reality is, there's one struggle in particular, the, the Canaanites who were themselves the victims of their empire's sins, coming under this judgment. Because there were lots of people who, who who were surely not happy with the way the empire was, and yet they're caught up in this war just like everybody else. That grieves me a little bit. But I just have to trust that God somehow provides grace for them within the midst of that. And we see a couple of stories in the Old Testament that show he does. In particular, we see it in the life of Rahab, right at the beginning of the book of Joshua. Here's a woman who's been sexually exploited as a, as a prostitute. And God actually pulls her out of it and gives her the chance to survive over and against all of the others who were exploiting her. So, so, so we see some sign that God really does side with, even, even the ones who are struggling and weak within the empire itself. But we only get little glimpses of that. And, and I kind of hope that I hear lots of stories of that kind when I get to to heaven that God God helped to pull out a lot of the people who themselves were being exploited within the Empire rather than just heavy-handedly judging them for the things they had gone through but again the main point here is this passage Joshua 1 9 and the book of Joshua as a whole really is about divine justice and his attempt to restore the world to side with those who have who have been ravaged by sin <clears throat> and to give them a place in the world to give them dignity to give them justice. Unfortunately, all of this leads us to the bad news. You see, the bad news is, in this passage, we're not the ones that God is siding with. we just got to be honest with ourselves about this. You see, the reality is, most of us in this room are the oppressors, not the ones that God is saying have been oppressed and I want to lift up. It's our culture that has attempted to systematically wipe out (coughs) or enslave other races. It's our culture that has turned women into sex objects and offered them the solution of killing off their unborn babies. It's our culture that has prospered from the economic exploitation of many many other nations worldwide. Now, Now it would be a really easy thing for us to say yeah I didn't choose that. I haven't deliberately, directly participated in those things. Leave me out of that if you're going to start making these accusations about our sins. But surely the Canaanites could say the same thing, largely. I didn't actually sacrifice any kids to the gods. I wasn't the one sacrificing kids. I just kind of stood by and watched and maybe even kind of disapproved a little bit as it was happening. Didn't do much benefited from the results but I wasn't the one up there on the altar sacrificing the baby this passage surely shows us that there is such a thing as corporate responsibility that God doesn't let us off the hook because of the fact that we aren't the ones with the knives killing the babies but he actually he actually makes very clear if we're not doing something about it we're we're part of the guilty parties and that's heavy. Far from being a nice, encouraging verse about God being on our side, suddenly we discover a challenge to our whole way of life. I think we miss something in this passage if we don't feel like God would be justified in raising up another nation to destroy us. Or, or maybe letting us orchestrate our own demise. Should be a little chuckle, but also a little bit of uncertainty with that particular picture, I think. Now, don't mistake me. I am not bashing all of Western culture. Much of Western culture is rooted in Christian theology, and because of that, there's a lot that's good about it. In fact, it's a real sign of our culture's goodness that I can even get up here and preach a sermon like this. Because there's lots of places where I'd be dragged away in a, in a hoodie and, and, and thrown into a river or something like that. But we still have to acknowledge we are part of an empire and that we have and continue to engage in oppressing other people. And I'm really hesitant to move on too quickly from this because we have to feel the weight of it. If this passage is really about divine justice, we recognize it's largely our culture that's sitting under some of that judgment. But I am really excited to say this isn't the final word that scripture has for us you see there is the good good news what we might call the gospel there is hope beyond us and that hope really centers on the life death and resurrection of Jesus Christ you see we're told that in scripture God who was incensed by all of this injustice all of this evil that he saw in the world actually came into the world as a man And that he took it upon himself to actually die at our hands and to overcome death itself. The death and resurrection of Jesus reveals God's purpose to undo the effects of sin in the world. We recognize this is especially hopeful for those who suffer injustice. Jesus says, blessed are those who are weak, who are poor, who are mourning, who hunger and thirst. It is good news to know those things won't have the final word. The death and resurrection of Christ prove that. God's not going to let those things have the final word. The death and the resurrection of Christ also reveal God's absolute forgiveness even towards oppressors. It says that none of us is beyond God's love and forgiveness that as he's hanging from the cross, being killed by his own people, he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And surely that's a hopeful message for us. We who might cry out and say, I didn't know what we were participating in. Father, forgive them. Oppressors, too, can be forgiven. At the same time, the death and resurrection of Jesus sets a standard for what it looks like to follow God. That he who is perfect, full of the riches and glory of God, emptied himself, even to the point of dying on a cross, a sinner's death. That he might be raised up to new life, seated at the right hand of God. And we're told this is the pattern God has for those of us who experience riches and glory. That we too might empty ourselves for the sake of others, and like them be lifted up. That's the life that Jesus calls us to. And this includes pursuing justice. A major theme in the prophets and the Gospels particularly. One of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, one that actually I I used up north with the Cree kids themselves, is Micah 6 verse 8. And here the prophet Micah is trying to summarize to the Israelites what God's life looks like. And he says, He has told you, O man, What is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? This is a really short, simple, and yet powerful summation of what the Christian community should look like. That we should walk humbly with God, have faith, trust in His forgiveness, trust that He is better than we are and acknowledge that in the way we live our lives. That we should love kindness, we should love our neighbors as ourselves, we should go out of our way to treat them well, and that we should do justice. That is, we should participate in the undoing of the effects of sin in the world around us. We should try and restore those people around us to the place God has for them. This is what God wants us to do. James puts it another, he says, true religion is looking after the widows and the orphans. This is part of what we should be about. Now, this is something that seems like a really big idea. Justice is a loaded word. It's a big word. I studied politics at Trent University. Like, trust me, there's all sorts of layers that can go into this whole idea of justice. And, and a lot of the time, the secular world, as it attempts it, it, it kind of spins its tires because it doesn't have that greater hope that we have in God's justice. And because of that, they, they just realize we can't find any human solution to this. But as those who have the confidence that God is going to ultimately do justice, I think we actually can take this idea of doing justice and we can apply it on a day-to-day basis. We don't have to be caught up with fixing the whole world. We just have to be the kind of people who actually live it out in in the ways that are within our grasp. The starting point of doing justice on a daily basis, I think, is to be humble. We have to lose the mindset that I deserve to be well off, to be healthy, to be successful. One of my favorite bands has a song called Beggars. And the chorus says, we are beggars all. And I'm going to read a couple of lyrics here. They say, all you great men of power who boast in your feats, politicians and entrepreneurs, can you safeguard your breath in the night while you sleep? Can, your heart beating, can you keep your heart beating steady and sure? As you lie in your bed, does the thought haunt your head that you're really rather small? If there's one thing I know in this life, we are beggars all. All you champions of science and rulers of men, can you summon the sun from its sleep? Does the earth seek your counsel on how fast to spin? Can you shut up the gates of the deep? Don't you know that all of this hangs as if by a string or the darkness poised to fall? If there's one thing I know in this life, we are beggars all. All you big shots that swagger and stride with conceit, did you devise how your frame would be formed? If you'd raised in a palace or live out in the streets, did you choose the place or the hour you'd be born? Tell me, what can you claim? Not a thing, not your name. Tell me if you can recall just one thing that's not a gift in this life. We are beggars all. We have to acknowledge we are beggars all. And because of that, we don't get to claim anything as our own as if it's intrinsically ours. That's the starting point for justice, is just to recognize what's mine is a gift. And from there, we can start listening to the people who claim that they've been wronged. It's funny, I I used to think that, uh, oh yeah, I love justice, but I get to be the one who determines whether a cause is really legitimate or not. That was often how I thought about this whole justice issue. Was Yeah, okay, I'll side with them if it sounds like they have a good case. But I've learned, no, no, we actually need to be a lot humbler than that and, and learn to really listen closely, even if at first glance we're not sure that people have a legitimate claim. And it's often surprising how legitimate claims of being wronged are. We need to be grateful. We need to lose the poverty mentality that so often haunts us and the tendency to base our self-understanding on comparing ourselves to others who are better off than ourselves. We do this individually, and we do this corporately. It's so easy to look at other people who have more than us and to say, I really don't have very much. I'm kind of lacking that nice new car that I'd like, or that bigger house, or that cottage, or I'm kind of lacking that complete state of being debt-free that I would really like to have. Whatever it is, it's so easy to compare ourselves and just say, I'm, I'm struggling here, I don't have enough, rather than recognizing how well off we really are. And the same thing goes for us as a church. It's so easy to look at congregations that are booming and have lots of people donating to them and have bigger, better facilities and to say, oh man, I just, I just wish that we were maybe more like we were 10 years ago. That, that maybe, maybe we could be a little bit more like that other church down the road that seems to be succeeding. You know, I just, I just came from a place where they have a church of 10 people. That's their church. They've got one church in town, 700 people in town, and and there's 10 of them that struggle year-round to try and maintain their faith in the midst of alcoholism and addiction and suicide and stuff like that. We have it good. We have it really, really good. And we need to be grateful for the things that we have. And that helps open our hearts up a little bit so that we can be generous. We can practice generosity with our money, our resources, our time. We can invite others into our houses, even if they're not the perfect house. We can partner with people who are doing some of the frontline work. One of the things that's true of the church is it always has Christians who are severely burdened with justice. And it is good to serve in ways that encourage relationships with the people who are serving, as well as relationships with the people who are being served. And we're blessed as a church to be actually alongside a number of organizations that do this: the Peterborough Pregnancy Support Services, the the the, the Youth for Christ and the Bridge Youth Center, the Warming Room, the Cree camps. I, I'm I'm glad Auburn is already doing a good job of partnering in ministry, and and I think we need to do more of that. In fact, I'm going to step out on a limb, and say so I think I think that element of our church life is something we should celebrate more and we should actually press ourselves more into. I I would rather belong to a church that's doing that well and and encourage everybody here to be doing that more. And if that even meant that we had to suffer some hits to the way things function here at the church, that's not a bad thing. I would rather exist in a church where we have a one-room Sunday school or we only have one or two worship bands instead of four and yet is doing justice in the city the other way around now don't get me wrong i i hope we can do both i'm glad we have four worship teams i benefit greatly from that but i think if we have to choose we know what god's heart is which one is the more important let's partner in ministry with those who are doing frontline work and last and certainly not least is that we should bear witness we want other people to hope in god's justice not simply our own efforts Because let me tell you, our efforts will not be enough. If there's one thing I've learned from the Cree communities, it's that there are issues there I will never even be able to scratch. The depression, the cultural baggage that comes with being told for generations that they're rotten and don't deserve to be alive. The the way that intergenerationally there's not a connection between parents and kids. There's so much going on there, and we come and do a week of camps, and it's like, we just a drop in the bucket. I want them to hope in God's justice, not just my own efforts. But we recognize that the most lasting evangelistic impact comes from relational trust, not staged preaching. This is especially true in a post Christian culture where people are aware of the church's flaws. More people will come to faith because of us going to them than me standing up here preaching. I hope that me standing up here preaching empowers us as a community to go out into the world because that's where the real witness is going to come from. We need to do that well as a church. So Auburn, my prayer for us is that we would be that kind of congregation more and more and more so. That we would ditch the poverty mentality, we would be humble, we would be generous, and we would do justice together in this city. And I believe that it will be a beautiful thing. So there you have it. Joshua 1.9. <laughs> Definitely not a simple passage. And yet I think one that really challenges us and grows us when we're willing to look at it a little more closely and read those words. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. I hope you'll never read those words the same again. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that those of us who have benefited from the exploitation of others are not lost, but that you you call us into a relationship with yourself and you say, "Ah, I'm seeking you. I'm here, ready for you as soon as you are willing to turn to me. And I pray that we'd be the kind of community that over and over and over again comes back into your arms, repents of our sin individually and corporately, and, and is part of your work of restoring the world all around us.